Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in John chapter 3. We're going to take up the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, how Jesus instructs Nicodemus on how he could become born again. Now, I did a three teachings in a church in Atlanta covering chapter 3. The division where I had to stop was constrained by my time constraints, and so this particular audio that I'm going to splice in here it does not exactly finish the story of Nicodemus. It stops at halfway, so we'll, we'll divide this audio into two parts. And so my splice, and, and let me give you the context here at the end of chapter 2. Jesus has just finished cleansing the temple for the first time, driving the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals out of the court of the Gentiles, out of the temple. All right, so here we begin our story of Jesus and Nicodemus. We're going, we're going to cover verses 1 through 10 in chapter 3, and my splice starts now. Before I get started, I want to ask you all a couple of questions. If a Chinese person came to you and asked to play a game of ping pong with you, would you accept? <laughs> of course not. If Ludwig von Beethoven came to you and said he wanted to jam a little bit Friday night with some of his friends, he had some new compositions that he wanted to play, would you go play chopsticks with, Be- with Ludwig? No, not if you have any intelligence. If Steve Ackerson asked you to come teach at his church, would you accept? Here I am. I've been li- I listened to his teaching on John chapter 1. I, I, I got sick yesterday. I didn't have a chance to listen to 2. So it's interesting to me that everybody was talking today about evangelism, personal evangelism, because John chapter 3 is about Jesus' personal evangelism of Nicodemus. And so, you know, personal evangelism is kind of similar. You know, you got... A holy God and a sinful person, and if you don't believe in the holy God, he's not going to accept you, and you're going to go to hell, so you need to get saved. I mean, that's basically the gospel, but how you present it, it depends on the person that you're talking to a lot. So we're going to look at that. Let's start with John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. I'll read it for you. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, to get an idea of who Nicodemus was, we need to look here in these verses and we see two things that said about him. He's a Pharisee and he's a ruler. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read the Gospels, I see all these names. You know, Pharisee, Sadducee, ruler, priest and Levite. I heard Steve teach you about priest and Levite on the tape. Priest, Levite, ruler, scribe, Pharisee, all these names. Well, I got curious and started looking into it. And I'm going to describe Nicodemus first by talking about what it means to be a Pharisee. Well, first of all, Pharisees were big shots. They had a lot of dignity. They were eminent people. And it's interesting that Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, was in a sect that hated Jesus. Now, this was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and they really started hating him at the end. But nonetheless, they hated Jesus. They ended up participating in his murder. But nonetheless, Nicodemus was attracted to Jesus. Now, they're famous for their legalism, of course, Pharisees. I looked up some of the the legalistic laws of the Pharisees. I, I love looking at these things. On the Sabbath, they had a lot of Sabbath rules. On Saturday, you could not travel more than two-thirds mile. Because if you took one step, well, it was actually... 2,000 cubits, but in our terms, about two-thirds of a mile. If you took one cubit 
too far, you just did work and you are in violation of God's law. A woman could not look at her reflection in a mirror. Let's say Carrie here. Let's say there's a mirror here. You're going to look at it, right, because you're a woman, right? (laughs) But you're not going to do it on Saturday because if you see a gray hair, what are you going to be tempted to do? That's work. That's work. Plucking hair out is work. So that's that's a no-no. That's a, Steve mentioned on the uh, to y'all. Those, those offense laws. You 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 put laws like that out there. You're not going to do any work because you get you're, you're further away from the law. If you write two or more letters on Saturday, if I say D A, I'm okay. But I put N on there. I've just done work and I violated the law. If I erase two of the letters, okay, three letters I've worked. If I take the trash out of my house from a private domain and put it in the public domain in the street. You've done work, and you can't do it, and God hates you for that. You can't carry a, you could carry a burden on Saturday, but the burden had to be small enough so that you could carry it with your little finger. But if you could carry it with two fingers, that's work. You couldn't spit on Saturday. Why could you not spit? Well, yeah, the act of spitting is work, but actually it's plowing. Because when you spit, the spit hits the dirt, and it separates the earth. And it's plowing, right? <laughs> so... Yeah, right. You couldn't, you could, if a fly came buzzing by on Saturday, you couldn't swat the fly because that's hunting and hunting is work. Let's say that your house caught on fire. If you got all your clothes together to carry your clothes out of the burning house, you just did work. Now, you could stop and put the clothes on because that's just wearing clothes. That's not work. But if you carry the clothes out, you're working and you're guilty of violation of the Sabbath. So you see how absurd and legalism is absurd, and we've got examples in Christian legalism too, as you know. All right, well, that, that was Nicodemus. That's, that's kind of his mindset. That's what Pharisees are. Now, let me give you some other characteristics of Pharisees. They were experts in the Mosaic law. That's the good law. That's the, the law given by God on Mount Sinai. They were also experts in the so-called oral tradition, where Moses supposedly talked to Joshua, and then Joshua talked to somebody and to another elder and passed it on down. The oral tradition got written down. You ought to know since you're Jewish, tell me when it got written down. I got him. <laughs> 200 A.D. So by the time of Jesus, the oral tradition was not written down, but they had to be the keepers of the oral tradition, and those were the Pharisees. So they were big shots in both law, the, the man-made law and the God law, God divine, the divine law. It was a religious school of thought. There were two schools of thought. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I'm just going to, oh, by the way, this reminds me, I'm going to ask you some questions. But I've, at the end, I'm just going to do 10 verses. And at the end, I'm going to give you all a little oral quiz. Because I retired from being a college professor, and I just love that feeling when I said, we're going to have an exam next week. <laughs> Knocked us on my door, their presents given to me. And, you know, <laughs> so, especially in China. You know, in China, they love to give gifts, especially at exam time. So, and here's the deal. If you pass the exam with, say, 70% or so, you get to have the Lord's Supper. If you don't, you have to stay back here for some remedial work. So be sure to listen carefully. All right. So, huh? Yeah, good either way, right. So let's, uh, a Pharisee or Sadducee, which of those schools of thought believed in the resurrection of the dead? And Sadducees did not. Which accepted only the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch? The, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Which school of thought accepted those books only? Sadducees, right. Which 
That's all I've got on that. All right. <laughs> what are, here's some cultural differences with the Sadducees. All right. Which school of thought tended to be more involved in Jewish politics? Sadducees or Pharisees? Sadducees. Which school of thought tended to favor the Romans more? Sadducees. Pharisees, they wanted to stay away from that. There were two kinds of Jews then. There were the Hellenistic Jews. They tended to be in Egypt, in Asia Minor, in Syria, around, scattered out the diaspora. And then the Jews in Jerusalem tended to be Hebrew Jews. They spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew, which tended to be more oriented toward the Hebrew culture. Pharisees or Sadducees? Pharisees, right? So you all know that pretty good, all right? So now, the Pharisees, you could say... Just to summarize, they emphasize the legal righteousness over relationship with God. And this is important to understand when Jesus comes talk to, to talk to Nicodemus, how he's going to approach his evangelism with him. They were concerned about all those legal laws. They were extremely argumentative over quibbling points of the law. Is spitting plowing or is it not? That kind of thing. And they were arrogant about their external conformity to the law. You know, they wore the long tassels in the robe and they prayed real loud in the marketplace and you know all, and you know all that. Now... This verse that I just read says that Nicodemus was also a ruler. That word is used a lot in the New Testament. What is a ruler? Let me draw my little circles here. Um, Let's say that one circle is Sadducees. That's a school of thought. And the other circle is ruler. A ruler was a a political leader in Israel. And right here... Most rulers were Sadducees, but they didn't have to be because some of the rulers were Pharisees, and some of the rulers might not have been either one. There's, you know, it could just been just somebody that wasn't affiliated with either party. And Nicodemus, we found out, we've, I've already told you, he was a Pharisee. He was also a ruler. So he, Nicodemus was over here. But most, uh, most rulers were Sadducees, but not, not Nicodemus. And how about, there's another term that we see a lot in the New Testament is scribes and Pharisees. You see that phrase, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were not the same group of people because you had some scribes who were not Pharisees. And you had some Pharisees who were not scribes. Scribe was a, a, a profession. It wasn't a school of thought. It, you need a notary to draw, write a letter or a judge needed somebody to write down a law. And the scribes since they wrote down the law, they tended to get involved in teaching the law and understanding the law. So they would tutor children and that kind of thing. They would, take, uh, they would handle the census for the military. So you didn't have to be a Pharisee to be a scribe. But most Pharisees were scribes and most scribes were Pharisees. All right. Now, how about a priest? Well, I don't have a circle for a priest. Well, yes, I do. Um, let's say that this is the Sanhedrin. You know the Sanhedrin, right? That's the ruling body in Israel. The Sanhedrin might have some priests were not in the Sanhedrin. Some priests were just priests. They worked in the temple. They were, had to be uh, of the tribe of Aaron. And, but, but many of the priests were in the Sanhedrin. So you see what happens is you have a lot of overlap, and that's why it's confusing. But now let's just all draw it together for Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. So he was a religious big shot. He was a ruler. He was on the Sanhedrin. So he was a political big shot. And we know not from the scripture, but we know from the from rabbis that he was one of the three richest men in Israel. So he was a financial big shot too. He was the ultimate big shot. So that's who Jesus is going to come witness to. And to know how, what Nicodemus was like, 
we, we, uh, get, will give us background to see why Jesus said what he said. Now, and some people actually believe that Nicodemus was the famous historian Josephus' brother, although that can't be proved, but they think it is. Now, what do we know later about Nicodemus? Do you think Jesus' personal evangelism worked on Nicodemus when Jesus said, you must be born again? He went to uh, go get his body. <laughs> yes, and, he, and that's in John 19. And even before that, in John 7, I'll read it for you. John 7, verse 51. John 7, 50 through 51. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, being one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, the Pharisees, his fellow Pharisees, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? So Nicodemus was already defending Jesus when the Pharisees were attacking Jesus. And then, as you said, in John 19, when it was the Friday after Jesus was taken off the cross about 3 o'clock, they went and got some spices and and anointed, and, and yeah, I guess you'd say anointed Jesus' body, prepared his body for burial. And it says here, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, that's in John 3 where we are, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 100 pounds of weight. Some translations have 75. Those, those, that kind of spices would cost a fortune. They said that kings would hardly be buried with that much spices. Jesus was buried with a king's amount of preparation. And Nicodemus paid for it out of his pocket. So that shows he was rich. But now, what does it show about, do you, it never says that he was saved. It never says he was born again. Do you think he was? Yeah, who says you think he was saved? Yeah, I think he was saved too, because otherwise he wouldn't be risking his life going out there identifying with Jesus. All right. So let me ask you this question. Why do you think Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? The, hmm? Well, of course, so nobody would see him, but why did he not want somebody to see him? And, okay, and why did he not want to be associated with Jesus? Yeah, and he's got a lot to lose because, like I said, he's a religious, financial, and political big shot. And, and by the way, I'll get you in just a minute, Gerald. And, and by the way, you know, we, Paul the Apostle said that not many rich, there are not many wise that come, but some do. Je- Joseph of Arimathea was rich. He paid for the tomb. And Nicodemus was rich and powerful, and he came to Jesus. Yes, yeah, Gerald. I'd also say he's not quite ready to risk it all because he's still has questions. And so maybe, maybe later he'll be ready to risk it. Yeah. It doesn't really matter, but now he's still got a little bit of questioning. So. Yeah. Yeah, he hasn't been, he hasn't been witnessed to yet by the Lord, yeah. Okay. All right. So let me go back to, let's see, verse 2, I think it is. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't understand what that meant. He, didn't, he was looking for a political kingdom, as Steve pointed out to you all earlier. And he, was, he didn't understand spiritual things, but he did understand the signs he had seen and the teaching that he'd heard. So he figured, well, you know, this, this must be a special man here. So, so he comes up very politely and says no one could, do, could be from God except for these signs. Now, it's interesting that the book of John some scholars have called the first 12 chapter the book of signs because John is extraordinarily interested in signs. In fact, if you study the commentaries, they talk about the first sign, the second sign, the third sign. The first sign was the changing of water into wine. And there were seven signs through the first 12 books. And if we look at John 20, verse 30 through 31, and this is one of my favorite verses, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book 
But these are written, these signs that he wrote about, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, the English Standard Version puts a heading up there that says, The Purpose of the Book. (laughs) Which makes my point easier. That's the purpose of the book. That's why he wrote the book. In fact, Steve mentioned this. What's what's the purpose of uh, of the Gospel of John is to get people to believe. So... So I, I, let, me, let me talk about science. Ed asked me Friday at the meeting at his house, had I ever read the book by C.S. Lewis called Miracles? And as a matter of fact, that book helped me from losing my faith. I, I mean, I was close to losing it. I was this close. I, I had an atheist father. He was totally skeptical, and he sneered at anything miraculous. Everything's rational. And reason and supernatural stuff is nonsense. So I started doubting whether the Bible was true, and, and what the main thing, the main thing that drove my doubt was, I said, well, I'm supposed to believe all this stuff in the Bible, but why, is, why did they happen back then, but they don't happen today? Why do we not believe it? So I went on a two-year, I, I prayed about it constantly. God, I don't want to lose my faith. I don't want to lose my faith. And I, I was at the University of South Carolina, and I, found, I, I don't know where I got the book. There was the book, Miracles. And I read it, philosophical-type book. Basically, C.S. Lewis said, yes, miracles can exist. These philosophers like David Hume is the guy especially who, def- who said, by definition, a miracle can never exist. So academically in my head, I said, yeah, okay, they can exist. So that was a big step. And then the next thing that happened, these two girls in my University Christian Fellowship said, yeah, you know this guy over here, his name John. We prayed uh, for him last week, and his leg was one leg was this much short. It grew out in the thin air. And I went, what? I didn't believe it. But I, I had trouble disbelieving it because the girls were honest, and I've been praying about this for two years. And so I said, so I just sat there and listened to them. They were in my dorm room. I remember this. And, and they said, well, we li- would, would you like us to pray for you? And I said, God, no, I don't want, you, want them to pray for me. I said, I'm, I'm going to lose my faith. I'm about to lose my faith. And then I started thinking, I've been praying about this for two years. Maybe this is an answer to God. No, God, I can't let him do this. I just, you know. <laughs> it really was. I, I, I'll never forget it. It was like. The struggle of my lifetime, it was, it, it, was an, it, was, it was terrible. The temptation I had to tell those girls no. But I said, what a fool I am. I've been praying for two years. I at least got to, I got to go on with it. So anyway, to make a long story short, they jammed me up against the wall. We measured my left leg was about that much shorter. And they prayed. And all of a sudden, and I, and I wasn't praying. They said, you pray too. But I wasn't praying for the leg to go out. This is what I was praying. Oh, Jesus, please don't let me lose my faith. <laughs> please don't let me lose my faith. And right in the middle of the prayer, all of a sudden, Starting at about halfway down my lower leg here, right at calf level, I feel this hot, fiery, electrical oil kind of feeling, you know, boom, barreling down my leg. And I stopped praying, and I looked, and I watched my leg grow out in thin air. And that was a sign that was a signpost post that pointed me to heaven. I've never doubted since. I haven't even come close to doubting. If the devil come up to me and say, you know, man, I thought stuff in the Bible is ridiculous, people rising from the dead. I just laugh. I just, ah, oh, devil, you... Surely you're jesting. You're going to try to convince me that's not true? Miracles are a sign that point people to Jesus. And I, listen, it's amazing how controversial this is. All over the world, especially in China. I, somebody told me one time that two-thirds of the people in China that are getting saved is because of miracles. I've, seen, I've listened to these people out in Xinjiang, out in the far west. Uh, let me tell you this story. This woman, I guess she was 50, 60 years old, so she had short gray hair. And her husband had an underground Bible school out there in the middle of nowhere. It's a Muslim area. And she had been insane for years, couldn't talk to anybody. She had a hole in her heart. 
And she had some Buddhist friends that said they would come pray for her in the name of Buddha to get her heart fixed. And, her, and of course, nothing happened. And so then, for some reason, it was, I don't know if it was a relative or a friend, some Christian came out. And there was not a lot of Christians out there in Xinjiang. And prayed for her. She got her mind back. Her heart's healed. And she's perfectly normal. And, of course, everybody's known her for years. Christians everywhere. This, stuff, this kind of stuff goes on all the time, all in China, I'm sure it's happening in India and other places in Africa, all over the world. And yet, they're Christians today who go around and say, in fact, I was listening to a video, a YouTube video of a guy I liked a lot. I did, until I saw this particular video. It's one of the most wretched, I'm not going to mention his name, but it was one of the most wretched videos I've ever seen. He said, uh, he said anybody that says that miracles happened after the age of the apostles is a fringe wing ding. And I listened and I said, so you're saying that the miracle I saw that kept me from losing my faith has caused me to be a fringe wing ding. Come on. So miracles are very important. And people who put up teaching versus miracles, they don't know what they're talking about. So miracles have a lot to do with the establishment of Jesus' kingdom too. Now, and back going back to this verse, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Well, how could, how could they know that Jesus came from God? It's because they only knew him as a teacher. That's why. Because they didn't understand what Messiah meant, what the kingdom of God meant. So Nicodemus recognized <coughs> Jesus as a teacher, but Jesus didn't care about that. You know, I was sick as a dog last night, and I told Steve I'm not going to be able to teach and so he got up at 7 o'clock this morning and, t- and studied for two hours. And I felt really bad about that. But I was feeling better. And I said, Steve, I think I can go on. <laughs> you might have to come finish up before me go. I don't know. <laughs> and I said, well, what did you study about? And he, he brought out this subject that he and I spent hours debating about 20 years ago. And unfortunately, I was never able to convince him that he was wrong on, on his position. <laughs> and he didn't convince me either. He says, I think I'm going to teach you on what you believe in. And I'm sitting here going, Steve, you never change your mind on anything. This is a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) So I was really feeling good then. (laughs) All right. So so Jesus moves the conversation away from Jesus being a teacher to being the son of God. So let's go to John 3, verses 3 through 4. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born where he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, first of all, let's take this word born again. The Greek word can be translated as from above, unless one is born from above. And that's perfectly okay, because when we are born again, the Holy Spirit comes from above and gets us born again. But since Nicodemus is going to end up talking about entering the baby, how can you enter back into your mother's womb? It makes more sense to think that the word should be translated as being born again. Now, remember, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to a Pharisee. They don't have any spiritual understanding. And as we go through this, we'll see that Nicodemus took everything that Jesus said literally. Jesus is trying to use physical examples to point us to a spiritual reality. He did that all the time. And what did the disciples do all the time? They just got stuck on the physical symbol and wouldn't go to the spiritual reality. Like, you know, the leaven of the Pharisees, oh, we didn't carry enough bread. You know, so Nicodemus is doing the same thing. Now, Nicodemus, like every Jew, thought that 
He was already in the kingdom of God. He's a big shot Pharisee. He's on the Sanhedrin. What do you mean? I can't see the kingdom of God unless I'm born again. Why was it necessary for a big shot Pharisee, ruler of the Jews, rich man, why was it necessary for him to be born again? Because he was dirty, foul, filthy, and polluted, just like every human being is born of their mother in this world. That's where we all are. And the problem with big shots is they think they don't need God. And Jesus is getting ready to show you, yeah, you do need God. All right. So let's go to John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot come into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, born of water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Now, scholars and commentators, they'll argue on and on and on about this. There's all kinds of possible solutions to what John was talking about. I'm only going to give you two. The one that could be right and the one that probably is right, in my humble opinion. I'm not going to take a stand on this one way or the other, but uh, not strongly. But being born of water and the Spirit, some people say that means being baptized in water and then being born in the Spirit, water and Spirit. Because remember now, uh, in the last chapter you had Jesus was, he was baptized in water, remember, and then he was baptized in Spirit. So that people say, well, John is carrying forth that same contrast, you know, between water and the Spirit. But I don't think so. I think it's talking about the contrast between the natural and the spiritual. Because that kind of fits the context, because... Nicodemus is having a hard time getting from the natural to the spiritual. And he's thinking naturally. And so I think what Jesus is saying, look, you got to be born naturally because when your mama's water breaks, is that how you say that in the medical term? When the amniotic fluid comes? When the, when the water breaks, that means you're being born naturally. And then you've also got to be born spiritually. So quit this idea of thinking you've got to go back in your mother's womb. That's over with. That's natural. But now we've got to talk about spiritually being born again. But again, that's just my opinion. I realize people don't all, all agree with me on that. Now, he said, he continues that in verse, I can't read this here, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So again, he's making that contrast between the natural and the spiritual. Now, the thing about the word flesh, it, that is a confusing word in the New Testament. I remember I gave my definition of it one time, and a guy in my church started laughing at me. It, it seared me. I said, that was a perfectly good definition of flesh, and he's laughing at me. <laughs> because flat, Paul used the word, which is a natural. Well, let's first of all take about, talk about the natural thing. What is flesh naturally? It's this pink or brown or yellow covering of our bones, right? That's the natural. And I was trying to tell my friend, well, Paul uses that to talk about ethical things. It's the ethical flesh. He goes, ethical flesh? That's absurd. And he started laughing. Well, actually, the Bible uses flesh, the New Testament uses flesh in two senses. One is the natural sense of your skin. And then Paul uses, and since you do sin with your, if you do sin with your skin, if you will, you know, you have to, then he uses the term flesh in a metaphorical sense. Let me give you an example in 1 Corinthians 15.50. This is an example of using flesh in the natural sense. 
Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's talking about you can't walk into the kingdom of God in your natural body that you were born with before you got born again. You can't do it. And then he's just talking about flesh and blood. It's something. It's nothing evil about it. It's just it's physical, not evil. It's natural. But then, of course, there are many scriptures showing that the flesh is, a, is used in a corrupt, negative spiritual sense. You're spiritually dead. You're, you're, in, you're controlled by your corrupt lust. For example, Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. You see that contrast? Flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So Jesus is making a contrast between the natural flesh and spiritual. And Paul takes it even further and talks about the corrupt, evil lust in you, which is not your essential nature. You're a new, new person in Christ. You're not, you know, if you, you can say no to your flesh, okay? And the, on the other hand, the spirit is, you can say yes to the spirit. But he makes that contrast. In Romans 8, 5 through 8, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Then there's lots of contrast like that. And the interesting thing is, if you go through and do a study on flesh and law and death, the verses that combine those things are everywhere. You can, you know, they're everywhere. But then when you talk about the spirit and life, those verses go together too. So there's a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. So Nicodemus hears this, and he's, in verse 7 it says he's amazed. Now, why do you think he was amazed? I'll ask you, Keith, why was he amazed? Well, he's not going to find anything that contradicts that description, but nobody talks about it. Well, what's, what do you mean? Well, that's the thing. Is when you look at spiritual eyes at the Old Testament, you're going to see this truth. From the Pharisee's point of view, or having his yeah. knowledge of the Old Testament, completely blind to it. Completely so, blind. So what happens is Jesus tells him that. He looks at it and goes, where did that come from? Yeah. I never saw that before, and it's right there. How did I not see that? Yeah, it, it, it was off his radar scope. You know, Ed told, uh, was mentioning about this thing Friday night that we did, and I remember thinking, because I, I know how Chinese people think, especially Chinese scholars, I said, if I start talking to, them about, talking to them about bearing the cross and giving up everything for Jesus, and they have to give up their communist, their communist uh, card, you know, and they don't get jobs, and the kids don't get into school, I said, they're going to choke on this. But I decided, I said, well, you know, this is what Jesus did. He, Jesus did the same thing. He went to people and told them things that they're going to choke on. And he was constantly saying, oh, you of little faith. And this is what kills me. Like, Peter gets out of the boat. It's dark. The wind's blowing. The waves are high. He walks on the water, gets to Jesus. How does Jesus finish up? How does, what does Jesus say to him? Oh, you of little faith. Now, if I had gotten out of the boat and walked on the water in the middle of the night... And come up to Jesus, and he told me, oh, if you little faith. I said, now, wait a minute. I did pretty good for the first three quarters. <laughs> and if, you read, if you read the Gospels, he's doing this all the time. He said, what's the matter with you guys? How come you don't believe me? You know, he expected people to believe him, and he told them the truth, and he didn't cut corners. He, you know, and he, 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 he hit Nicodemus right between the eyes. He hit somebody with something that, by his nature, he could not believe. And just like Keith, you said, it's the spirit that saves people. And really, I think when we personally evangelize, we really need to not worry about how weird it sounds or how, how they're going to take it. Just tell them the truth. And then let, let God decide what happens, in my, in my opinion. All right, so 
Then Nicodemus, uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus says, the wind, in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this is a good analogy, especially since the Hebrew word ruach is the same for wind and spirit, and the Greek word pneuma is the same for wind and spirit. So this is a perfect example of how the natural reflects the spiritual. Now, let's look at that comparison a little bit. Does anybody tell the wind where to go? No. And if God wants to save a serial murderer in prison, have we got any right to say, no, you can't do that. He's too bad. You can't do that. The wind, the Holy Spirit can go wherever he wants to, and he can save whoever he wants to, and he does it all the time. So that's one point of comparison. How about the power of wind? Boy, I, there was, I thought it was going to be a tornado out of my place in South Carolina. I live in the country. And the wind starts blowing like crazy. I drive down the road, these huge trees blown over. I mean, the wind can do a number on you. Like if you've been through a hurricane, for example, the wind is powerful. Is the Holy Spirit powerful? Oh, yes. We tend to think of you know, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, so gentle, so sweet. The Holy Spirit is powerful. He does His work. And another point of comparison is this. If you see the, the trees waving in the wind, can you see the wind? No. What do you see? The effects of the wind. Likewise with the Holy Spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the effect. Now, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you this uh, because who was it that mentioned, I think it was you, Keith, said that you don't, when are you prepared enough to give the gospel? But listen to this. Lee Sheen called me about, we chatted me about, what, two months ago, maybe three months, I can't remember, said she had a friend of hers in Winjow, where she taught, was where I used to teach too, and she said, this girl wanted to have a Bible study with me, wanted to learn about the Bible. Well, you know, I've had a lot of Chinese people do that, and they, they really want to learn English, not the Bible, you know. And that's a good evangelist, too. But I just, I don't know, I just was not in the mood for teaching somebody English. So I said, now, Lee Sheen, I said, this girl, does she really want to know about the gospel? Does she want to know English? Oh, her English is great. You don't have to worry about that. Well, I'm still a little bit suspicious. So I, so I, I did an interview with her, and I said, what do you know about the gospel? She said, well, she'd been to church, in, I think she'd been to church with you for Philadelphia, in Philadelphia for a year, and she'd learned about it. I said, well, did you get saved? No. And I said, why not? She said, well, they told me I was a sinner, but they didn't say how to, what to do about it. <laughs> so I said, well, it's very simple. You know, I told her the gospel, and she, got, she accepted Christ, you know. So I said, that's pretty good. So she wanted to learn about So anyway, I've been doing weekly Bible studies with her, and one, just recently she said that she ate supper with one of her colleagues at work. And this colleague, she's divorced, got a mother or two. Her life is just in total chaos. It's horrible. And she looks at the, the convert, the young convert is named Meng Yuan. The divorcee looks at Meng Yuan and says, what has happened to you? And Meng Yuan said, what do you mean what's happened to me? She says, last year, if something went wrong, you would blow up like a bomb. And now you're kind to everybody. What's happened to you? And Meng Yuan, she's been saved too much. She says, well, I'm a Christian now. Jesus changed me. So, you know, that's not the whole gospel. She's got a ways to go before she can preach the gospel. All right, but what a powerful witness, you know. Just So, yeah, we should always be willing to share the gospel anytime we can. All right, so let's go to, I got one. How much more time do I have? Huh? Okay, well, I'm almost finished. Okay, thank you. I guess I get dispensation this morning. That's good. Um, oh, okay. John 3, I got one more verse here and I will quit. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Now think about this. Talk about how Jesus expects high things. Here you got 
a, a Pharisee or teacher of the law. He's never heard the gospel like you and I have. He doesn't know anything about being born again. Where in the Old Testament does it talk about people being born again? And Jesus said, what's the matter with you, Nicodemus? You don't understand the Bible? You don't understand what it means to be born again? Why did Jesus do that? How could Jesus be so hard on Nicodemus? Let me give you a quote from John Gill, an old 19th century commentator I like to use. Said the re- Here's a possible answer. Quote, he was not a common teacher, talking about Nicodemus, he was not a teacher of babes, nor was he a teacher in their synagogues or their divinity schools, but in their great Sanhedrin. He was a big shot in the ruler in the in the ruling council of the Jews, and he by golly he should have known. And I thought, well, no, Mr. Gill, I don't think so. I don't think just because you're a big shot Jewish rabbi, you are going to understand all the stuff that we know because of our spiritual experience. Well, I don't I don't I won't take a stand on that either. Apparently some some commentators say that Nicodemus should have known. I have trouble with that, all right? But at least that shows that there's stuff in the Old Testament that somebody could have read and figured out how to get born again. And, you know, I was growing up, I always used to wonder, how do people get saved in the Old Testament? They don't have Jesus, you know? Yes, sir. Abraham believed by faith and was reckoned to him as righteous. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. And I'm going to read some of the things from four places. A circumcision of the heart is in the Old Testament. Not just the flesh, by the way, but circumcision of the heart. Let me read this quote to you from John Gill again. You could learn about a nation's being born at once by sanctification, by the grace of God signified under the metaphor of water, and by quickening persons comparable to dry bones through the wind blowing and breathing on them. Well, that's talking about nations getting born again. I'm not sure it's talking about people getting born again. So anyway, my point is Jesus expects a lot of people, and he didn't he didn't mince his words to dumb down his evangelistic sermon to the people that were listening to him. He gave it right between the eyes. This is what you need to know, Nicodemus. And I think what he was doing was, he was saying, Nicodemus, don't be so proud. You think you're a big shot. You're not a big shot. You need to get born again. And he was trying to bring him down very politely, very lovingly. You know, Nicodemus obviously loved Jesus. He ended up embalming him. You know, So he loved Jesus. But Jesus was trying to say, don't let your pride get in the way of the kingdom of God. And so, what's the application? I want somebody to come up, anybody. How can we apply this, these ten verses to us today? Go just like my students. <laughs> ah, here we go, Ed Cowett. So, so Nick Demas was in, uh, a Jew. He was a Jew, and he was uh, raised in Jew and trained to be Pharisee and stuff like that. And just because he was in those positions it doesn't mean he didn't favor to God. Just like children in Christian families today raised in the Christian home and such, just because they're in the Christian home doesn't mean they're in the kingdom of God. So That's true. That's good application. Good. Tell the truth like God's story about. Yeah, good. Tell the truth. Yes, sir. Well, I thought about that verse Robert quoted about Paul said it didn't come with persuasive words of wisdom. And that says to me, I mean, when I witness to somebody, even if I give reasons for believing to a lost person, it's God that's got to do the work of conversion that's right. in that person's mind. That's right. Gerald. Just a reminder, too, of the, the new man that, we, that we've been saved to walk in now. Um, our salvation is not as if you could think it is now. And so the man yeah. walk in the newness to, to live as a new life in Christ that's really going to live life. Amen. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Fred? It's in a different way. Um, 
that, yeah, we, if I was to take these 10 verses, I would just assume there's no point of making assumptions about which person is likely to believe. Uh-huh. Yeah. My, the application I, I, I said, wrote down was, don't be a Pharisee. Don't rely on your flesh rather than the Holy Spirit for anything. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how handsome and how beautiful you are. I don't care. None of that stuff matters. You know, it just doesn't matter. It's the Spirit. It's not the flesh. All right, how much more time we got? It's over? Well, I want to give them a test, but I don't know if they, you know, you know that expression, saved by the bell. If you'd ring the bell, they wouldn't have to take the exam. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, I've returned from my splice of my teaching in a church on John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, the first part of the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. We'll take up the second part, verses 11 through 21, in our next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that and hope you enjoy this audio.